Good morning. If you have in your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That's going to be our passage this morning. Before we get there, I just want to thank several people. I want to thank everyone in general who has helped out their neighbor or their, um, their, their fellow brother or sister in Christ this past week. Um, it's been a wonderful opportunity for us to live out one of the major parts of our mission, namely other directed acts of service. So a major, a major focus of our mission is to live other directed lives, to move away from ourselves towards God and to move out from ourselves for others. And I have seen that evidenced in your lives this past week, and I am just so grateful for that. I, I rejoiced this past week in seeing many of you seize the opportunity, and I, I'm, I'm sure that there are more of you who seize the opportunity to serve others that I, I just don't know about, but, but thank you so much for doing that. That is who I want the Northwest Baptist Church to be. I want that spirit of other-directed love and service to uh, be something that is a chief characteristic of our church. Uh, I want to thank two people in particular, Dave Chase and Sam Thompson, uh, who were out and about this past week, uh, clearing trees, getting houses boarded up, and getting them, uh, 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 what do they call those things, Uh, shuttered up, that's the word, I'm shuttered up. That's what my wife says to me sometimes, shutter up. But these guys really, really helped out. Dave actually came up after the very day after the hurricane. Uh, we, we had a lot of down trees in our yard, in our neighborhood, uh, in Hollywood. If any of you know, in that area, there's a lot, a lot of trees. And many of those trees were down. And Dave came up like Superman with a chainsaw. Dave's scary without a chainsaw. He's even scarier with a chainsaw. And we were able to really just go around. We got in with one of our other neighbors, a young guy who, uh, we, who just moved into the neighborhood and who Stephanie and I have really just uh, you know, fell in love with their, their little family. Uh, he came along with David and I. It was a wonderful opportunity to witness and go around uh, witnessing with a chainsaw. Maybe that'll be a sermon series one day. But we were able to go and help others, and it was really a wonderful time. But these guys, uh, those two, and I'm sure there are more of you, they, they really stood out this past week uh, as, we, as we really worked together to clean up and to protect our, our property. You know, as I watched last week all of the weather reports, you know, we all become meteorologists when a hurricane comes. And there is this cone, right? We all know about the cone, And they call that cone the cone of what? Uncertainty. Because from our perspective, we have no idea where this storm is going. Somehow, certain news stations always have the cone of uncertainty right over our neck of the woods. But nonetheless, as you watch this, you have to think, gosh, things are so uncertain from our perspective. We really just have to know when we're beat. I mean, technology has advanced so much. The very fact that we can even see a storm and know that it's out there is just amazing. I mean, think about in 19, I think it was in 1929, there was a a huge hurricane and nobody knew. They're out just 
enjoying the day, and then all of a sudden, their homes are just completely destroyed, and no one knows anything. No one has any idea that there is a monstrous storm right outside their door. And today, we have all of this technology where we can see satellite images from space. We can know the wind speed. We can know the direction. We can know the size and strength. It's amazing. But still, with all of that, we still have uncertainty. The the, the hurricane at one point was going to go right up the east coast. I saw a little path between the, in the Florida Straits between the Bahamas and Cuba and Florida, and the eye of that hurricane, which is the most devastating part of the hurricane, really could have just stayed out over those oceans. As I, as I began to pray, that was my prayer. Lord, just keep the eye. You can. You can keep that eye right out of the way. You can if you want to. Why, why not? Early in the week, the cone had it. Over to the east. By the end of the week, it was over to the west. Nobody knew what was going on. Except one person. God knew what was going on. And what this does is it puts us in a wonderful, wonderful place where the only thing we have as human beings is faith in him. That's it. There's nothing you can do. We have to know when we're beat. And when a 185-mile-an-hour hurricane, the strongest hurricane on record in the Atlantic Ocean, is coming right at your front door, the only thing you can do is board up and pray. But God's will will be done. As I watched the Cone of Uncertainty last week, I just couldn't help but think that the path of Irma was already predetermined by God. It shifted from east to west, it sped up and slowed down, it oscillated in intensity. It was the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean, but ultimately where it went was under the sovereign plan of God. This morning... I want to talk about God's sovereignty through the storm. Here's what I want to preach this morning. God sends the storm that he might send the Savior. God sends the storm that he might also send the Savior. Look at our passage this morning. Starting in verse 35, Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Mark, Mark writes a gospel that's very quick. It's very immediate. He uses the word immediately an, an awful lot. And so Jesus is going from one preaching engagement to the other. And the fastest way to travel in those days was by boat. He says to us, let us go across to the other side. Jesus' goal at this time was to preach. He said, I've come to preach. And so this provides the, the master with an opportunity to go across to preach some more. But while he's on this journey, he's going to need some rest. And leaving the crowd, <clears throat> they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. When Jesus would preach, oftentimes he would preach in boats. 
both provided an opportunity to have a stage. You know, they didn't have stages in those days. And Jesus would preach from a boat. But also, he would get out into the ocean in the boat because the people who came to see Jesus didn't come for the preaching. They came for the healing. And so Jesus would would get in the boat and he would go out away from shore so that people wouldn't touch him and they were constantly molesting him. They were grabbing him and, and holding him to try and get some kind of power and some kind of force. But Jesus' main goal is not to come and heal. His goal is to come and preach. He's already said as much. My goal is to preach. It is very important that every Christian understand the preeminence of preaching Jesus was the greatest preacher the world ever knew. He was a preacher. But so many Christians today have replaced preaching with the spectacle of healing and the miracles. And Jesus preaches in boats for a very important reason. Listen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is healed in this life will not be eternal. It will not remain forever, but the words of life and the promises of God are eternal. So Jesus is in a boat, and he's going to move from one boat to another boat and travel across the Sea of Galilee. And the scripture tells us that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling Imagine a tiny little sea vessel made of wood. It, that, that area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is very low below. It's almost 7,000 feet or 700 feet below sea level. And there are mountains that are, one mountain, Mount Hermon, is 9,200 feet above sea level. And there's this little valley. And so what happens is cold air comes down and warm oyster from the ocean comes up and it mixes into a tempest. That's how tornadoes form. You have cold air from the up high, warm moisture from the bottom, and it whips those winds around. In fact, the word used there to, to, for thunderstorm or for storm is actually the word that they used for hurricane. This was a serious storm. So bad that their little vessel was beginning to fill with water. It was very scary. But the Bible says that but he was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. How could anyone sleep through a hurricane? Somebody said to me last week, it sounded almost like the wind was talking. I think it was Denise. It was saying, do payroll. And you obeyed. Thank you. And, and so Jesus is asleep in the midst of this? I mean, does that not strike any of you? What is he doing? And what's so interesting about this verse is there's two things going on here. It's revealing to us both Jesus' humanness and his more than humanness. Jesus had to sleep. He was tired. And he worked constantly to fulfill God's command for his life. He was working constantly to preach his business, his food. His life was to do the will of God, but it was a tiring life. And Jesus was asleep. 
But what is also striking about this is that the events surrounding his slumber are almost impossible to sleep through. How, how could anyone sleep when they are certainly about to die? I'm sure that Jesus was splashed by the same waves and moved about by the same wind. Certainly he felt it. If the disciples were panicking enough to use the word perish, then Jesus could feel it. Why then is he at such rest? The Bible says, and they awoke him. And they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is a sarcastic question. And it proves that the disciples had not yet understood who Jesus was. They're not asking Jesus to calm the storm, as we're going to find out a little bit later in the passage. They're going to be afraid when he does it. They're asking Jesus, how can you be so calm right now? Get a bucket and help us throw the water out of the boat. Get to work with us. Don't you care that we're about to perish? How can you sleep at a time like this? Really, it just reveals human emotion when we're panicked. You know, we always say mean things or unkind things or our tone gets louder when we're scared and when we're afraid. We saw this last week, how on edge most of us were with this hurricane beating down on us that we, we may have said an unkind word this past week because we were scared and that's what the disciples are doing. Don't you care? We're about to die. We're about to perish. How can you be at such rest? Bible says, and he awoke, and he rebuked the sea and said to the sea, peace, be still. It says that the wind and the waves were stilled. It's so interesting that Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, which not, neither of which have ears. They have no ears to hear nor a mind to comprehend what they're hearing. Yet Jesus stands up and yells. He rebukes them strongly and says, be still. And everything is now calm. How is it that that which doesn't have ears to hear nor a mind to comprehend would obey this man's words? It is amazing that all of the sudden that these inanimate things that have no life in them are now obeying as animate and as living, breathing, and thinking human beings. It is because the breath of God gives life to all things and his very voice beckons that which cannot comprehend to bow to his authority. Everything. It says the wind ceased and there was a, a great calm. What's what, what, what was once chaos, it says great winds are now a great calm. We should hear in these words, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that the earth was without, it was formless, it was void, and it was without form. 
But when God speaks, what was once chaotic is now cosmos. It is now orderly. God says to it, do this, and it does it. And we shouldn't think here that that Jesus is using some kind of spell, like he's telling the dishes to wash themselves. Bippity-boppity-boo, and the dishes go when they clean themselves. There isn't a special spell that Jesus knows, and if you just get on Google, you'll find it. Somebody's cracked that code, and you too will be able to calm the storm. The winds aren't going to listen to you. Nature isn't going to listen to you. It doesn't care what you have to say. It will beat on your front door. It will come to your house. The storm will come. It will do what it wills, and you can't stop it. but it will obey the voice of its master. And when its master says, be silent, be still, it goes from great chaos to great calmness. He said to them, why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? The word still is of utmost importance at this point. It's one thing to be terrified by the natural elements, but now the disciples are still afraid. It wasn't like, oh, Jesus got up and he spoke to the winds and the waves and they just said, oh, thank God we got that. Thank God Jesus is in our boat. They don't yet understand who he is. And who they have been following, their rabbi, they use the word teacher, you are our teacher. Who they think is just their, their leader, their master, their teacher, nothing special about him in any way like this, all of a sudden stands up, yells out into the waves and into the wind, and it stops. And Jesus says to him, why are you still afraid? One thing to be afraid of what we expect in life, hurricanes, but when the unexpected comes to our doorstep, there is great terror. Jesus is the unexpected. He is God in the flesh, and when he speaks to the wind and the waves, even they obey. And Jesus says to them, why are you still afraid? He says they were filled with great fear. Not from the storm, but from him. He was the source now of their fear. It was his breath that scared them more than the great winds of the hurricane. His breath commands the hurricane. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We're not sure how well the disciples knew their Bible, but certainly echoes of Jonah and of Psalms 107 must have been quaking in their minds. When they asked that question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him, certainly they were reminded that Psalm 107 teaches that only God can make the storms be still and the waves of the sea be hushed. 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Yet despite his rebuke, they won't understand until the resurrection. The point of the passage is to reveal in story Jesus' divine nature. That is, that Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man. He is both at the same time truly God and truly man. It is to teach us that when God is with us and that when God is our friend, there is to be no fear since he is in control. I want to talk very briefly about several things that we can take away from our passage. Number one, panic and anxiety are the result of not understanding that God is in the boat with us. Panic and anxiety are the result of not understanding that God is in the boat with us. When the disciples run over to Jesus and they shake him to wake him up, they don't understand who they're talking to. They just want him to get involved and to help. Grab a bucket, take the water, and throw it out with us. Act like a human for heaven's sake. I mean, don't you see what's happening? And their panic and their anxiety comes from the lack of understanding just who is in their boat. Up until this point, they've already witnessed some amazing things of Jesus. They've seen Jesus heal a paralytic man. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus heal the lame and heal those who have disease. And now... They still don't understand that in the midst of this, they've got all of this knowledge about who Jesus is. They've seen a man lower down from a ceiling. They've seen a man with a withered hand be healed, a man who's paralyzed be healed, and then it doesn't matter. It's as if all of these things that God did for him over here don't matter when they're in the storm right now. All of the knowledge that they have of God has gone out the window to the pressing matters of the immediate scare of the immediate fear. It's to show that the greatest threat is not a lack of knowledge, but doubting the knowledge you already have. Panic and anxiety are the result of not understanding that God is in the boat with us. The disciples were afraid because they believed that nature was uncontrollable. They were afraid because they didn't believe that God was with them in the midst of the storm. And they were afraid because they doubted what they already knew about Jesus. And James Edwards says it best. He says, the real threat to our faith doesn't come from a lack of knowledge, but rather from doubt and unbelief. Life is going to present every one of us with a storm, either literally or figuratively. And it is in these times where what we know about God in our heads has to be actualized in our hearts and with our hands. In other words, 
what good are we doing every day and every Sunday to learn more about God if we never put what we know into practice? There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. They are not the same. There are many people who know a lot and don't use what they know correctly. They take what they know and use it incorrectly. Wisdom is not only knowing what's right, but then acting in a way and in accordance with what is right when the time presents itself. Christians, when the storms of our lives come, it is an opportunity to witness to the world that we will be unshaken by what we believe in our heads. Live it out. Don't waste your suffering. Don't act as the world acts when the storm comes. Trust that God is with you in the boat. Second, God is present in the midst of your sufferings and struggles. The Bible tells us that Jesus slept while the disciples, or yet, while the disciples were restless. He was splashed by the same waves and rocked by the same winds. But why does he sleep while the disciples panic? The reason is that Jesus demonstrates a total and complete hope and trust in faith. He has what a real faith, a real Christian faith is to look like. You say, I, I don't know how I could produce such a faith. I, I don't know how, if, if I got the terrible news from the doctor, what, what would I do in that moment? M many of us have asked that question, maybe in private, maybe we've had the discussion. What would I do if I found out I only had a couple months to live? We ask that question. And Jesus demonstrates a peace that is to be exemplary for all of us. It is a peace that rests easy in the knowledge that whatever God does for me is good. Whatever he does is good. Paul said as much in Romans 8.28, for we know that for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for their good. It's not that all things are good, it is that he works all things for their good. And so even if God sends the storm, the storm didn't happen on accident. I saw one little, one little um, I don't know, maybe some of you saw this, one little uh, comic strip of uh, what was supposed to be God. He was an old white guy with a beard. God doesn't have a body, but anyway. On The Simpsons, he's yellow. Um, and he's up in heaven, and he's sit sitting here, and the earth is right here, and he's playing with a fidget spinner, and the fidget spinner falls down to the earth, and he looks over, and there's Hurricane Irma. And God is kind of like, ooh. He's doing one of these at the end of the strip. Ooh. It's funny, but some of us think that 
That's what God does. Some of us think God wakes up in the morning, where's the remote? Let's turn on channel seven. They're going to have grime and guts. Oh my gosh, there's a hurricane coming? That's not God. God goes, Hurricane Irma, I'm going to make her. And I'm going to send her on the West Coast if I want to send her on the West Coast. And I'll have her wipe out an island if I want her to wipe out an island. And I'll have her save your rear end if I want her to save it. And I'll give some electricity and I'll take away some houses. And I'll knock some trees down and I'll send trees through buildings. He does all of it. It is no accident. When the storm comes in that boat on that day, it is God who sends it. And he will send death and cancer and a loss of job and a loss of loved ones and every other suffering you can think of, he will send. He will be the Lord of that. Either God is in control of everything or life is completely uncertain. But the God of Scripture is not reactionary. He is actionary. Remember, the title of this morning's sermon is that God sends the storm. It is God who sends it. So certainly he is present in the midst of these sufferings and struggles. But it is important at this point that we make a distinction between suffering that God permits and suffering that we have caused. Yes, God is in control of everything, but that does not mean that we are always free from the responsibility of what life has thrown at us. One of the most disgusting things of our current philosophical paradigm is the idea that we're not responsible for everything that happens in our life. We blame everyone. Everyone is responsible for why I don't have the job or the education that I should have. It's someone else's fault. It's the systems or it's my parents. Listen, I'm, I'm fine with that if you want to believe that. If you want to believe that, that's fine. Maybe it really was their fault. What does that have to do with your responsibility now? Some people even use this as an excuse to not follow God. Oh, I get that you may be disgusted when pastors and priests do terrible, terrible things. But if you are going to stand before God one day and say, the church that I went to, the pastor was mean, that's why I didn't serve you, Jesus, and you think that that's going to be an excuse that he hears, you are fooling yourself. You are responsible for what you do with the Savior. 
It is one of the most, Stephanie and I were talking this morning, one of the most obnoxious things I hear is how, is how people choose churches. It's so obnoxious to me. Oh, it's too far. 30 minutes. Jesus didn't care. He didn't come to you and say, follow me if it's convenient. Is it convenient? Oh, it's 45 minutes away? Oh, you know what? You should worship at the synagogue then because that's closer. Jesus just walked around leaving people with the inconvenient truth. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Drop what you have, pick up your cross, follow me. Because following Jesus is inconvenient. It's not convenient. It's hard. It's cross-bearing. It's sacrificial. But it is worth everything. If we're responsible for the suffering in our life, here's what you can do to overcome it. Confess your sin. The first thing you need to do if you have suffering in your life that you've caused, and listen to me, listen to me, go home and sit and ponder, and I'm telling you, you are not doing your job until you have, you have found at least one thing for your current situation that you are responsible for. You could have done something different. If you have suffering in your life right now that is caused by you, the first thing you need to do is go home and confess your sin. God, I did this. I got me to this point. I could have done this. Trust me. If you are looking for it, you will find it. The second thing to do is repent it. Repent of it or from it. It's one thing to say it with your mouth. It's another thing to stop doing it. It's another thing to make the about face and go the other direction. To recognize that your life is in a mess today and to acknowledge it with your mouth is nothing if you don't acknowledge it with your feet. You've got to go another direction. Progress at this point will be making an about face. It might mean going backwards. The third thing you can do to overcome suffering you're responsible for is accept the consequences. Accept it. Be at peace with it. You may not be able to alleviate those consequences. Accept them. See them as God's grace to you in his discipline. But what about suffering we're not responsible for? Certainly, it would be hard to find anything in the disciples that they did wrong by getting in the boat. I mean, they did get in the boat at the afternoon hours. We do understand that in the afternoon in South Florida during the summer, we're going to have very bad storms. It's when the moisture is its hottest. It's coming out the end of the day with the, hot, with the heat, and it mixes with the cold, and we have storms. But there's nothing that we can look at this story and say, they're responsible for it. How do we handle suffering that we're not responsible for. The first thing we have to do is we have to accept that God is sovereign over everything. 
Sovereignty means not only that God rules, but that God has the right to rule. He has the right to send storms and to not send storms. Scripture says this about God's sovereignty. He is the potter. Does he not have the right to make some vessels of clay for honor and other vessels of clay for dishonor? That is God's sovereignty. It means that if God wants to destroy every one of our homes, he has not only the right to do it, but is holy when he does. You say, I I don't like that God. Then throw this out. In just a moment, I'm going to prove that this is the God of the Bible. But this God is a God who is sovereign over everything. Second, trust in his goodness. That when God does send suffering, it's not for evil. Even though it is painful, even though it is hard, it is not for evil. You say, I don't understand. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to understand how God can send suffering and it be good. I'm not asking you for for that. I am not asking you to make sense of it. I am asking you to trust him. That is what I'm asking for. There may be no answer for why you're suffering. But God tells us to trust that he is good. And that when it comes, it is for good. Even good you can't even comprehend. So that you could sit there like Job and say, yet he slays, though he slays me, though I've lost everything, yet will I trust him. You know, the, you know what the answer to the problem of evil, you know what the problem of evil is? Why is there evil and suffering and God is good? How can those two things exist? You know what the answer to that question is? It's trust. In other words, there isn't an intellectual answer. It doesn't exist. It's trust. It's looking at the storm. It's sitting in the middle of the storm, seeing the Savior and saying, I'm at peace. You say that's supernatural. Absolutely. And you have the Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit can do. Finally, hope in his promises. Hope that what God has done and promised in the next life is there, and it's real. The last point I want to make this morning is that God sends the storm that he might also send the Savior. God sends the storm that he might also send the Savior. One of the hardest teachings in the Bible for people to accept is that God is the author of good as well as evil. But the biblical depiction of God's absolute sovereignty is clear. God is in control of everything. I don't have time to go into every single passage. If you want them, I will give them to you. I will just name what he is in control of in Scripture, and I will give you some of the many passages God is in control of the forces of nature. Psalm 147, 15 through 18. God is in control of animals and plants. A sparrow falls, he's in control of it. 
That, that butterfly who dies in the middle of a forest, God's in control of it. If, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? <laughs> Absolutely. Because God is in control of it. Man-made devices. God is in control of the plans of men. Random events. Things that we think are random. In Proverbs, it says the lot is cast, but it's every fall. Where it falls is in the hands of the Lord. Nations and rulers. Large-scale disasters. Satan and demons are under his control. We're not watching a movie here, wondering who's going to win. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Remember the story of Job. Satan comes before God and asks permission to do his bidding. Remember the story in 1 Kings where God calls upon him spirit, an evil spirit, to do his work. God is in control of physical suffering. He is sovereign over mental and spiritual suffering. Psalm 4, 7 through 8. Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 34. He is sovereign over human thoughts. Jeremiah 31, 33. He is sovereign over, over human decisions. Proverbs 16, 9. He is sovereign over good human actions. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He is sovereign over evil human actions. Genesis 45, 7 through 8. 50 and 20. Remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. His brothers took him. They sold him into slavery, took his coat to his father, put blood on it, and said that he had died. He was put into slavery, ended up in prison, and finally ends up in the highest place a man could occupy in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And as his brothers are coming to him for need and for help, here they are standing before the brother that they've sold into slavery. They don't recognize him. They've done all of this evil to him. And Joseph says this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That hurricane last week was no accident. God sent it. And he'll send every other piece of suffering. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in heavens that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is, a fully, is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God's sovereignty is absolute. There is not one particle in this universe that is outside of his control. Well, then why has God permitted 
suffering. Scripture tells us that he might send the Savior. In John 1, 1 through 5, here's what the gospel writer wrote. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why is the world like this? Why is the world full of hurricanes and suffering? So that God might send the Savior. That is the reason for creation. Why did God create the world? So that he might send his son. The word was with God in the beginning. He created the world in the beginning. He was creating it knowing that he would have to redeem it. What is the meaning of life? Jesus Christ is the meaning of life. And if you don't have Christ this morning, your life is without meaning. You might say that meaning is in that job, but when God lets that God, little g, die, what will be your meaning then? Jesus Christ is the meaning of life. And God sends the storm that he might send the Savior. Well, what should our response be? It's simple. Repent and believe on his name. Second Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should, same word used in the passage, perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some of you are asking the very question the disciples asked this morning. Don't you care that I'm perishing, God? Don't you care? Where are you? Don't you care that I'm, I'm dying, that I'm perishing, and you're silent? You're asleep. And the Lord rebukes you with love and says, I have sent my son. I have sent the Savior in the midst of your storm. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? For those of you who are asking the question, don't you care, God, that we're perishing? Jesus would ask a penetrating question to you. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The storms of life have come 
or are coming. In that time, who or what will be your refuge? Are you trying to scoop the waves from your boat on your own efforts? Or are you silent and trusting in God in the midst of the storm? Ultimately, the question is this. Who will you trust in to save you? Yourself or the Savior? God sends the storm, not that you would trust in yourself, but that you would trust in the Savior. This morning, you can begin to trust Jesus as Savior by confessing your sins and by professing your allegiance to Him. If you want to do that, I'd like you to pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I confess my sins, that I am a sinner, and that in this storm of life I have no refuge but you alone. Jesus, you are Savior. Jesus, save me from my sins. Jesus, I commit to serve you all of the days of my life and that no matter what storm comes my way, I will trust that you are God. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I'd like you to come and share with me your newfound faith in Christ. I want to make it very clear that no prayer There is no magic words that we say. Christian is as Christian does. The life that counts, Christian, is the life you live for Christ every moment of every day. Many have come and said a prayer and have gone off to serve other gods. Jesus spoke about those gods when he said, those types of people, when he said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will pray the prayer, Lord, Lord. Then I will tell them, depart from me, workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. When Jesus calls you to know him, he is calling for you to have a personal relationship with him today. And not for this moment but forevermore. Every person who professes faith in Christ has become a light to the world. We all know the importance of lights this week. It wouldn't make much sense if FPNL said your power was on, but none of your lights worked. Why then, or how then, can a Christian say he's been redeemed, yet he has no light? If you've prayed that prayer, I'm asking you to let your light shine among men. Please, this morning, I'll be at the back. Come and share your faith with me so that we can grow together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for this message. Let your word go where you send it and accomplish that which you please. 
We thank you, Lord God, that you send the storms because you don't send the storms to destroy us. It is not your will that we should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance. We have preached the knowledge of repentance through the name of Jesus Christ, the only name, the only way to salvation. It is my prayer that there are people today who were not serving you, but who will serve you now and for the rest of their life, that they will find you, Jesus, to be their shelter in the time of storm. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory, Father. Amen.